Gene Shepard is a broadcaster. He is also a writer. His column appears monthly in Car and Driver magazine. He's on WOR radio here in New York from 9.15 to 10. And we're going to talk about the human situation. That's the end of the introduction. I have none, and I have not seen you since we were together in California when we talked about the cosmic itch. The cosmic itch that we all have, especially in New York. I guess you understand it more now. Do I ever? We were talking about some of the remedies that are sold for uh, hemorrhoids on the television and radio. (laughs) And uh, hemorrhoids, in case you didn't hear it. And uh, you mentioned the the relief itching. And the cosmic itch, itch, and you said, when you get to New York, boy, we know what the cosmic itch is. That's right. We invented it. (laughs) New York invented the crisis. They work in it like an art form. I want to talk to you about cars. We didn't do that last time, because we always talk about radio or television and such thing. Why do you write a column for Car and Driver magazine? Well, I don't really write about cars. I write about, uh, I guess... uh, as a right, shows you know, how much car driver driver magazine. Uh, yeah, uh, car magazines are much more sophisticated today, Tom, than they used to be. It's like uh, the car is such an integral part of everybody's life that if you write about life, you're right, really writing about cars and vice versa. The only thing I ever read in the car magazines, Motor Trend used to have the Detroit Listening Post, and they would tell you in 1955 what the 1956 Chevy was going to look like and everything, and I used to buy it every month to yeah. find out, and that, that's really all I know. Oh, well, that's, that's uh, way out of date. As a matter of fact, Tom, uh, of, uh, I'll give you an idea of my latest column. Uh, it's, it's about driving along Route 22 in Jersey, which, as you know, is a majestic artery of total decadence. Uh, mile after mile of instant seat cover places. <laughs> you wonder what they do in Jersey. They need instant seat Let me covers. see if I got Highway 22. You go through the tunnel down around Newark Airport, and there you pick up Route 22. And the yeah, Route 22. goes out over through Plainfield and in through there. Well, to me, Route 22 is the great American classic uh, jammed suburban highway. I mean, you go past discount show, uh, stores that are selling... Uh, discount lawn furniture and nobody within miles has a lawn you know it's uh, but they all come and they stand and they look at the lawn furniture you go past places like the leaning tower of pizza <laughs> and then it casts a shadow on the pat boone hamburger heaven you know and you just drive along there's the dairy queen a whole crowd of guys lined up there and millions of cars and this is where you see america and the other day i'm driving along got an idea for a column uh, one of the major sports in Jersey is tailgating. They tailgate. I've had guys actually with their front wheels up on the back of my trunk for miles, you know, riding piggyback. You know. So I'm driving along. I see in the rearview mirror this Jersey tailgater right on me, so close to me I can't even see his hood. I just see his face. It's one of my rearview mirrors, and he's eating a Big Mac. We're going 60 miles an hour. <laughs> On the other hand, he has a chocolate milkshake. He's sitting there in you know, your typical jersey, looking around, and a rock is going. You can see his head flying around. <laughs> I said, oh, God, you know, this is, you get intimations of mortality. You see, the guy's right behind me, and all of a sudden I see directly ahead of me is this gigantic tractor trailer. Enormous. Here I'm sandwiched in between, see. And the tractor trailer, Tom, is filled all the way to the sky with squashed automobiles. <laughs> Seven inches thick, you know, they go up like that, see. And I see these bumpers all looking at me, see, and you couldn't even tell what kind of cars they were. Green, yellow, blue. 
rust purple. And they still had their bumper stickers on them. I'm looking at the history of the race. <laughs> one says, all the way with LBJ. Another one said, I break for animals. His car was six inches thick. Obviously, somebody didn't break for him. <laughs> one bumper sticker said, Walt. In, in, in this red day glow tapes, he said, Walt. And it suddenly hit me, my God, Walt. I could see the day in 1957 when he went down to buy that Ford Galaxy. <laughs> he took Emily. They're standing in the dealership there, and it's glowing green and beautiful. And ten minutes later, they drive out, and year after year, Walt is paying in on his thing. He's putting on uh, Johnson glow coat every, every Sunday on it. He puts his name on the side of it. Walt. Walt. And now, where is Walt? And I, I kept thinking, I wanted to say something to Walt. I want to say, Walt, your car, your galaxy, do you remember it? <laughs> You remember the Neapolitan needlepoint neoprene upholstery wall that you loved? And remember when you got the plastic the things in the mail from the from the people in Minnesota and says protect. Protect it forever. <laughs> Internal protection. <laughs> Walt, your car's on its way to Japan. <laughs> it's in the yes, hold. Thirty-six papers in ninety-eight. It's in the hold of the funky maroon. <laughs> Wall, it's liable to come back at you as a 105 shell, Walt. <laughs> you don't escape your life, and I'm driving along, and this guy behind me is eating the Big Mac, you know, <laughs> spitting out the window. At that point, I says, I've got to write about this. And that's my latest column in Car and Drive. It's what I think about all the time. They used to have the thing in Philadelphia near the airport that we used to call it the Crusher. And in L.A., it wasn't the crusher, it was the grater, where they put the car in and it would chop it up into little itty-bitty pieces. What a choice, the crusher or the grater. <laughs> or the grater, right. But what you've got to say to yourself, like Walt is probably saying, Ah, you dummy, Walt. <laughs> and all of us put the grinder <laughs> into operation. <laughs> yeah. 98 83 a month for 36 big ones, right? Yeah. And where are they? They're, like you say, there it is. Six inches. <laughs> About that big. Now, by the way, I know one guy that got so damn sick and tired of it all. i got to tell you one thing about driving. The difference between here and, and, and California. California, the minute a pedestrian, you put your foot on the pavement in the crosswalk, yeah. everybody stops nice oh, because yes. it's the law. Here in New York, you just step off the curb, they step on the gas, they come at you 90 miles an hour, they dare you to get across that street. Tom, I am sat in the back of cars, you know, I'm a great student of the cab drivers, <laughs> and I speak the language, see, and so I get in and I immediately take a look at the guy's hack license, see, there's this picture there, see. And uh, I, I like to call them by their first name. So he says, Myron, take me to 48th and Broadway. Yeah. Myron looks in the mirror, cigar. And you go about 10, 20, maybe 30 blocks, and all of a sudden the, the conversation, you know, starts breaking out. And one day I'm with a guy, and he says, hey, he says, look at that guy. He says, look at that guy. He ain't even looking his way. You see this pedestrian walk, a typical New York pedestrian. You know, he's got a Macy bag in one hand, a gimbal thing in the other, you know. He walks out in the street, doesn't look left, 
All right, he's walking. He says, watch me give it. <laughs> I sit in the back, you know, and he goes, whoa. And we cut in between the curb and the pedestrian. <laughs> he, he wasn't expecting something from behind. See? And he went up like that, and I see these two Macy bags in midair. <laughs> and at that one moment, I see this guy, he's spread eagle. See, he looked like a radiator ornament. I come across 6th Avenue and 50th Street, right outside the building here yeah. one morning, and there's no traffic at all anywhere around. It's quiet, and the lights are red down to 8th Avenue, two long blocks away. Yeah. And the light turns green, and I'm walking against it. It took those cars one half of one second to get from 8th oh, Avenue, because the you, minute Tom. they see you, they're ready for you. It's an open market. In fact, you know, Tom, I think that the American, and, and uh, being, being a student of Americana, I believe that the car is such an integral part of our life. You know, here we're sitting here exchanging car stories the way men of the 19th century would exchange sea stories. Or horse stories. Horse stories, sure. The car is our thing. And and we have a love-hate thing about it. We we love the car on the other hand, and we hate it on the other hand. And and a friend of mine, the guy lives in Jersey, he had this car. So name isn't Walt, is it? No, I, as a matter of fact, his name was Frank. Uh, <laughs> Bluetooth Frank, but uh, Frank one day his car is going. He's got a new car. I said, "You trade your car in, Frank." Had it three years. The first one. He says, nah. I said, "What'd you do with it?" So I'll show you. We go into his house. Now I'll show you something. Right in the middle of his living room is a two and a half foot square cube of Crestman. <laughs> I said, Frank, is that your Dodge Coronet? Just look at that mother. I hate it. I said, you put it right there. He says, I knew I'd find a way to get back at it. <laughs> he had it squashed, and now he's got a he's got a glass thing on the top, and people all sit and they look down at that thing, and you know, and they have the coffee. There was a guy in California who bought a Lincoln Continental Mark IV. Now this is a this is a high ticket car. What are these? Ten ten thousand dollars, something like that. And and he felt that he got a lemon, and he kept it for I don't know how long, six or eight months. <laughs> and he finally got so fed up with the car, he drove it down to Southgate, California, outside of L.A., right on the front lawn of the Lincoln Mercury Zone office, and he set fire to it. <laughs> now that's a gesture. I like that gesture. Cam <laughs> Graham going up in smoke. I can <laughs> see all state. <laughs> you know, tell, I, I'm just curious. Uh, let me let me do these little announcements. Here. Yeah, we okay, got two fine. minutes worth of commercial time, and we'll continue with Gene Shepard in uh, in two minutes. And I'll just stay tuned. NBC announces for Thursday a tomorrow show special commencing at 1 a.m. Eastern and Pacific, midnight central for six hours. Join Tom Snyder in welcoming the bicentennial with his guests in New York City, plus live Las Vegas, New England, and Atlanta. The Tomorrow Show, July 4th, six hours live here on NBC. Idea. Say that again. I think it's a fantastic idea. Six hours of television. Yes, sir. All night long. Live. Yep, live.
Um, that is for the first four hours. I no, sir. We mesmerized. You know, we had to talk about that, about uh, whether we ought to pre-tape some of it, because you know you got to go to the John and you got to you know have a cigarette or get a sandwich or something. And I, uh, you know, we just. Oh, I know you're going to be live, Tom. Technically, but after about four hours of that, I can imagine you just. It's like going to a party and you stay two days too long. You know? <laughs> we're not serving anything. Here. You're there alive, but they only see your feet sticking off from under the day bed. The problem that we're having though is you call people. Say now, listen. We'd like you to come in between 4:15 and 5:15 a.m. And they look at you, or they the phone goes dead. Is what happens. We yes, have because we have some open space there, Gene. Now I know that you believe <laughs> in the phone. It's just phone. <laughs> I just looking at the notes, and I mentioned to Gene that you do a 45-minute radio show. Nobody does a 45-minute radio show. It's six hours, or yeah. telephones, well, or Tom, I don't treat radio as radio. See, I'm I'm essentially a a, a nightclub monologist stage performer. And I'm used to doing 45 minutes on stage. That's what I do. In fact, I, I play 30, 40, 50 colleges a year. In fact, uh, tomorrow night I'll be playing Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, and and radio to me is not my medium. It's it's just a medium. You know, uh, uh, I uh, so going on the air for 45 minutes. I go on just as just as say Mort Saul would go on uh, on the nightclub stage. I don't think in terms of uh, Anything other than Do that. you just take your whole day and you walk in and, 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 and sit down in front of a microphone and say, well, folks, and you're no. off and rolling, or is this pre-planned? Not at all, Tom. Uh, uh, I have, uh, you, you can't, anybody who's tried to do a monologue knows that uh, any good actor, I'll tell you, that sustaining an audience for, say, even three minutes when you're standing in front of them tough. is tough. It takes preparation. It takes technique. It takes uh, a beat and a tempo dramatic tension running through it. I don't talk when I'm on the air. I perform. Very different. Whole different character. Uh, when it's I'm not like what you're doing now. No. Swapping stories. No way. Uh, in fact, I will start out, and I use silences a great deal, Tom, just the way on the stage you use space and light. Uh, and I build the show in a series, just as any good monologue is built, like a one-act stage play. I build it in a series of almost like sine waves. I hit several peaks, and then as I go out off the air, there's a theme that runs through it, as I go out, which I have long since determined. For example, if I do a show one night, and, and I want to do the show about... Uh, Slide your mic up. It's slipping down oh. on your uh, on your poly. Okay, how's that? That's good. If I want to do a show, Tom, for example, about... Uh, I'll take a theme, not a specific idea. How's my mic look, Gene? That's a pretty one. Okay. Very nice. That's Sears Roebuck, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Goes back on the fifth. Well, very good. Yeah. But I... Uh, see, I... Uh, any good monologist, for example, uh, Bill Crosby, we'll, we'll take him. Uh, Bill will go out on stage, and I know how he'll work. He'll take, he'll take seven or eight major stories that he knows he's going to tell. Now, the audience has the feeling he's just thought of them as he comes out. But he'll orchestrate the whole, not just a series of stories. That's the difference between a, a good monologist and a one-liner who comes out with a whole bunch of one-liners and then runs like hell and the marimba band takes over. Uh, I saw Buddy Hackett do a thing one time where he started out telling a story about playing golf and he did 50 minutes worth of material and the sure. end of the story 
the end of the monologue was the end of the story he started telling at the beginning, and in between it was digression and sidetracks. Right. That's exactly the way I work. In fact, I did I did on stage here at Carnegie Hall this past year, uh, 45 minutes about a kid at the age of nine learning to play the tuba. <laughs> His first moment of discovery of the world of aesthetics, staring into a silver mouthpiece and, and realizing that the tuba could play him. In fact, he's, he's trying to play this thing, and the next thing you know, he's, he's, he's confronted with the fact that a lot of stuff is damn hard. And the, get, the moment of getting that first note out of a tuba, it's a fantastic moment in his life. Never could turn back after that point. It was a whole new thing. Well, for 45 minutes, I sat on the stage and didn't use a word. That's, that was a challenge that I set up for myself, where I came out and I just made sounds. Oof. <laughs> Opens the spit valve and three gallons come out. <laughs> I got the picture. Uh, by the way, at that point, he suddenly realized, too, that Beethoven is a lot more than aesthetics. He's got a sweat and pop and other things. So the point being here, to get back to your story, when I, when I go on the air at night or when I go on television, like my TV show on PBS is the same, mm -hmm. that I, 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 I orchestrated as a one-act play with a mood as the theme rather than a thing as the theme. So if I say I want to create in the audience uh, a feeling of, uh, let's say, sardonic humor about their lives, suddenly to see their life, I will do, say, a thing just like that thing with the car. Everybody's seen these cars. Mm -hmm. Everybody's been tailgated. Everybody's gone past the Dairy Queen. And all of a sudden, everybody is stepping back and looking right at themselves. Exactly. And they say, well, yeah, you know. Uh, on the other hand, if I want to do a story about, let's say, fear, I don't talk about fear. I, I tell a story. Like the night I told the story of, of uh, going out on a date when I was a kid. And I cars all shined. Got my electric blue sport coat, you know. I had a DA haircut that weighed eight, nine pounds. You know, greasy kid stuff. Oh, I, I was ready seeing her with this girl. She's like alabaster next to me. We drive down the street, top down. My car has been shined. I need gas. It's a hot day. We stop at the gas station. The kid comes over and he starts putting gas in. And I get out and I'm walking around, you know, I'm looking at him. I turn to her and I says, so, would you like a... I won't even name the drink. Would you like a... Uh... Yeah, I know. I know. Not a, it's a real drink. I know it. If I were, if just, would you like a, a, a drink, see? And she says, oh, yes, I think so. And I'm being very elegant. I walk over and I get these two bottles out of the machine. You know, the machine's there. Ice, get them out, bring them back, give her one. I'm being very suave and I open the bottle and I'm walking around drinking a, whatever it is. Cars all shine. Cars shine. I'm on top of the world. And I'm drinking half the kids putting the gas in. And I don't know why I did it. All of a sudden, just one of those things. I take the, the drink up and I look at it in the sun. I can't believe it. There's an inch and a half of dead flies in the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> 
and I put drink in it. All of a sudden, everything fell apart. I run back behind the shell station, and it all starts to come up. And the worst conceivable thing is happening on the date. She's looking at me. I'm sweating. I says, I've never forgotten that, that moment. Every time I go to an elegant restaurant and they bring the salad, I pick up the first piece of lettuce and I expect a pair of beady eyes peering out at me. I told that story, and millions of people are listening, and all of a sudden they feel this same fear of, of the unexpected, the total horror happening to you. And that's the way I'll tell, uh, I'll, I'll decide before I do a show now, it'll be funny the way I perform it on I was going to say, the difference between the way you do it on stage and the way you did it here is when you're on the stage, it's funny, right? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, on stage, see, I play the whole thing. I'm, I'm the kid, you know, walking around. What was the question you were going to ask before we did the commercial? I was going to ask you what kind of a car you have. I don't have a car. I have no car. I sold my car when I was in California but, uh, because here one does not need a car. Well, did you have a car out on the coast? Yes, sir. What did you have? Well, I, and I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I had a Cadillac when I was out there. Well, I think nobody thinks that's obscene. Well, I don't think it's obscene, but the people who run the network might want the Cadillac Motor Car Division <laughs> to pay for that little mention. It would be kind of nice if you said it was a Mercedes, then I know you're really in. But, uh, uh, <laughs> no, all my life since I'm a kid, my father always said to me, you know, kid, if you can ever have a Cadillac, this is the supreme. So I started making a buck doing this show, yeah. and I went out and I bought this car. And right when I bought it, we had the energy crisis. And the value of, the, of, of a pre Cadillac went from... Hmm. I know how you feel, Tom. I've owned cars in my past where at night, 3 in the morning, I could hear the car out in the garage drinking gas. Yeah, yeah you said that the last time. We keep, well, I know it's a terrible <laughs> feeling, Tom. It's and, uh, I, so... When, when, you know, I, I went through that whole thing. You know, when you're into cars, when you really... I love cars. Yeah, I think I most of cars. us do. Uh, there's a, is that love? Now, thing? this one that uh, American Motors has out, this Pacer hot car. I read yeah. about that on the business page where that's helping that's the company. Car. The interesting car. It is. It's probably, uh, aesthetically, one of the first true departures since the late 40s of the, uh, of the Studebaker, the... Uh, uh, the Norman Lloyd Studebaker. You remember those those uh, cheese box on a raft? Yeah, when they first yeah, came you could, out, you couldn't tell that. whether it was coming or going. That's right. I thought it was Raymond Lowy that did that. Raymond Lowy. I'm sorry. Yeah, That's, you're right. And that was the first real breakthrough. And then I think uh, we went through a whole period of box cars, and now all of a sudden, we're, this I think this car reminds a lot of people of the Porsche. Porsche. Do you know what was parked in the Rockefeller Center garage the other day? Remember the Imperial that had the great. Big fins on the back oh, with the sure. bullseye tail light. I haven't seen one of those for ten years, and this one was all spiffed and polished. And you think, you know, we should have saved those cars. That was the days. Ten seconds. I can't pay this off in ten seconds. We'll be right back after these. <laughs> Usually I'm here alone at the end, but uh, but uh, Jean is still here because I want to get the hours that you'll be here, July 3rd. What, what can we put you down for? <laughs> hey, don't keep the coffee hot. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Monday, uh, we have Ted Mack coming on, and we went down and looked at all the kinescopes today of the uh -huh. uh, the amateur hour. 
and he's got one guy on there who whistles through his belly button. Now, wait till you see it Monday. It's, it's, you think it sounds gross. What do you see it? Is he going to do it? Or is no, no, Ted doesn't do it. The guy who got the gong does it. Listen, I'm out of time. Thank you for coming on. You came on short notice, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Ted. And we will see you Monday night with Ted Mack, and have a good weekend from all of us who work the late shift here in the heart of New York City. And good night, everybody.